This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, the conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. We might want to believe that the calamitous decision to invade Iraq was done by a bunch of evil, lying folks but it was actually something more insidious and dangerous, namely ideology overriding facts, environments that suppressed alternative perspectives, executive power, personal loyalties and ambitions, departmental rivalry, and genuine error and fear. These tendencies continue to exist and therefore it is critical and even urgent to examine just how it all happened. Robert Draper's new book, How to Start a War, How the Bush Administration Took America into Iraq, does this brilliantly. It is a comprehensive account with new access and documents analyzing what has been called a smoldering wreck of foreign policy, a decision still haunting us and shaping today's US foreign policy and therefore the world. This is Robert's fourth book, and he again brings his prodigious research, independent thinking, and intelligence to create this revelatory book. Robert, welcome to Just the Right Book. Thank you so much for having me, Roxanne. Uh, So Robert, obviously 9-11 put an accelerant on any inclination to invade Iraq, but I'd like to anchor our conversation with pre-9-11 conditions and characters. So let's start with what was the general understanding about whether Iraq had weapons of mass destruction? The general understanding, Roxanne, was that Saddam did. And, uh, And he was viewed as a malevolent force but primarily within the administration viewed as a malevolent force within the region, not not so much towards the United States. And I have to say that though the the conventional wisdom, I think, has been that Bush was itching to to go after Saddam, the guy who, after all, tried to kill his father in 1993, I found that that was not the case. I mean, uh, um, President George W. Bush certainly did want to see regime change, uh, uh, figured that it would happen at some stage. But at the same time, was a um, was a two-term governor of a border state, didn't have much foreign policy experience, and like a lot of governors who were elected to the presidency, had um, a a presidential agenda that was very domestically inclined. Uh, you know, education reform, tax cuts, and immigration reform. These were Bush's cups of tea, and and uh, uh, and he didn't want to spend his time hugging war widows. You know, that's that's that was um, he. he did not want to go to war, and and uh, people forget. But in the 2000 presidential debate against Al Gore, he said about the high idea of nation building. He said, "No, no, no. If if um, they'll respect us if we're humble." So his view wasn't we're going to go throw our, our weight around, uh, much less that we're going to go um, uh, into a uh, a preemptive war, as turned out to be the case after 9/11. And, and I think that you know, of the, when I think about the lingering misconceptions or myths around the decision-making. One was that Bush was hell-bent on revenging the attempt to murder his father, or the way Saddam dismissed um, uh, Bush Sr. after the Gulf War when they liberated Kuwait and and they decided, decided not to invade Iraq. He almost taunted him then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the way I explain it to people in the end of the book, Roxanne, is that it's not that that George W. was hell bent on avenging his father. Nonetheless, um, in Bush's in the younger Bush's muscle memory um, was the recognition that Saddam Hussein was this bad actor who indeed had tried to assassinate his father, at least by the available intelligence. That was the the supposition. And so when it came time to view Saddam, to view the world in the wake of 9-11, he very much viewed um, uh, the Iraq dictator uh, through, you know, uh, through a glass darkly and began to see uh, the worst possible elements of Saddam. You're right that that, um, Saddam uh, viewed it as as really a a victory, that he uh, managed to avoid 
being deposed by George Herbert Walker Bush. Uh, and after September 11th, he basically was the one leader in the world to rub America's nose in it, saying in, in a speech on September the 12th that uh, America has has reaped the thorns of its foreign policy, basically saying you guys had this coming to you when even Iran didn't say that. So, it you know, the um, uh, the view then was that, you know, Saddam was a really bad guy. And when um, others in the administration, like the Deputy Secretary of Defense, Paul Wolfowitz, began to say, not only is Saddam a bad guy, but Saddam was probably involved in September 11th. And if he wasn't involved in that, he'll certainly be involved in the next attack on America. Uh, that was then when the locomotion began to go to war. So I just want to bring up one other element uh, and have you contextualize it uh, for us. One of the surprises to me uh, that I was reminded of in the book was what's called the Iraq Liberation Act of 1998. Now, I don't remember that. Um, and so explain to us what that was, why it was passed, and who was driving that agenda then? Right. I mean, you you hardly stand alone, Roxanne, and not remembering it when it was passed. <laughs> well, that's but comforting. It's, well, yes. but it's actually important because um, at the time in 1998, um, uh, Clinton was a weak president because of the Monica Lewinsky scandal uh, and um, was not about to buck the Republicans on something that was near and dear to them, as well to, as to some sort of pro-military guys like Senator John Kerry, uh, or I'm sorry, Senator Bob Kerry of Nebraska. And uh, what the Iraq Liberation Act was, was basically a, a resolution um, that, that, said, uh, that said basically the position of America is for regime change, and we will devote about $98 million to support Iraqi refugees in a kind of um, Saddam resistance movement. That's all it was. It was a very small commitment. But then after 9-11, when um, it seemed that, uh, that the Bush administration was basically changing the subject by talking about um, uh, Osama bin Laden, whose Al-Qaeda had been responsible for the attacks at first, but then suddenly starting to pivot and talk about Saddam Hussein, what they could say was, well, look, it has been official policy of the United States right. government, you know, from the Clinton administration onward to have regime change. Now, regime change did not mean by any means necessary, including military force. It meant at the time that the resolution was passed, that this guy, you know, we, we don't like this guy. We want him to go and we'll support efforts to make him go. Uh, but, um, uh, but, you know, it was not spelled out. Uh, in the resolution, but certainly we'll never want to invade. Uh, it, it basically laid the template for viewing Saddam in a very unique way, because after all, Roxanne, it's not like we had all these other resolutions floating around saying, um, exactly. you know, the Syrian dictator, we're, you know, this, it should be regime change, you know, for Iran too. Now, this was, uh, Saddam stood alone as this kind of supervillain that we had posited since the Clinton administration. The Democrats let it happen, and they were kind of caught in a position after 9-11 where, uh, where the Bush administration could say, look, a lot of you guys voted for this too. You know, President Clinton um, supported this resolution. So describe for us who Shalabi was and what role he had in ending up convincing the U.S. government to pluck Saddam Hussein out as the evil guy that we needed to pass a bill for. Sure, Ahmed Chalabi was one of the people responsible for passage of the of um, the resolution that we were just describing. Chalabi was an Iraqi refugee. Uh, his family had left um, uh, just after the Ba'athists and Saddam Hussein came into power in the in the 1970s, and uh, and he hadn't seen Iraq for you know something like three decades or so, but had been um, uh, single-minded and incredibly energetic in keeping Saddam on the radar as this bad guy who needed to be deposed. And in the 1990s, when there weren't too many of these people around, uh, there was Chalabi on Capitol Hill uh, showing up at hearings saying, look, um, there are Iraqi refugees like myself who will form a resistance. We have contacts within Iraq, uh, and uh, this won't cost America anything uh, other than just giving us kind of logistical support, and we'll do all the hard work ourselves. And uh, the importance of Chalabi 
and of the person I mentioned before, Paul Wolfowitz, who also in the 1990s was in working in think tanks, was a professor, uh, was out of power from the first Bush administration, but was joining this otherwise lonely crusade that Chalabi was participating in um, to, uh, to posit Saddam Hussein as this singularly villainous figure, uh, that that kept Saddam in the conversation. And so mm -hmm. after 9-11, when we began to look around and say, all right, who else should we be looking at um, uh, suspiciously in this new war on terror? Saddam Hussein became an obvious culprit. And on reflection, what was his agenda? Yeah, Chalabi's was, uh, I think Chalabi wanted to be um, in charge uh, of the new Iraq. Uh, he was pretty careful not to say so, but he certainly led his supporters to believe that was the case. And many of them thought that that would be a great idea. I also do think that that uh, Chalabi, this gets kind of complicated, but his father was part of the sort of uh, um, Shia aristocracy uh, that had been deposed when the Ba'athists came into power. And, and the theory advanced by some of Chalabi's associates to me was that this is what he wanted more than anything else, that he wanted kind of this enlightened aristocracy to return to power and um, uh, it you know, would be peaceful, it would be educated, they would be full of technocrats. And, and I think it's as much that vision as some kind of single-minded pursuit of power himself uh, that animated Chalabi. Although maybe he was the one driven by more revenge against <laughs> in defense of his father than Bush. I, I, I think there's some truth to that. And I also do think that, that um, you know, where um, we can maybe stop a little short of painting him to be this wonderful idealistic character, Achman Chalabi, I mean, uh, is that by any means necessary. He was willing to overthrow Saddam, yeah. meaning tell us what we want to hear. It won't cost us anything. We'll be greeted as liberators. Saddam also is, um, he's been consorting with Al-Qaeda uh, and he's got weapons of mass destruction. Chalabi would give us whatever it took to tilt us towards the prospect of war and of liberating uh, Iraq. Mm. All right, so now let's get to the decision-making. Um, the perception of the key players in the Bush administration ranged from um, the evil and de facto president in the form of Cheney uh, to Wolfowitz as the architect of the plan to invade Iraq to Tennant's failure of intelligence um, to the overreaching bullying Rumsfeld to the compliant and ultimately complicit Powell and sort of leaving Condoleezza Rice almost without a portfolio. Yet four days after 9-11 in a meeting at Camp David when Bush asked the top five members of his war cabinet, I'm quoting uh, from your book, Cheney, Powell, Rumsfeld and Card for their opinions on whether to attack Iraq in addition to Afghanistan. The vote was unanimously against it, except for Rumsfeld, who abstained. So what was the first step in changing their mind? Because wasn't it even on that same day that Wolfowitz asked for a plan, a war plan to invade Iraq? Yes. Well, like, did he leave was, the room and do that? No, no. What happened was that um, Wolfowitz, uh, late in the evening of 9-11, really the early, early morning of September the 12th, sent out a tasking to the Defense Intelligence Agency, basically requesting any information that would link Saddam to terror groups. So here's everyone else thinking about Osama bin Laden and Paul Wolfowitz, the Deputy Secretary of Defense, the second in command to Donald Rumsfeld, is thinking no, 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 Saddam had something to do with this and I wanna make the case, you know, so you go find me the history of his support for terror. Then a few days later at, um, at Camp David on September the 15th, when Bush's War Council is meeting with all of the players that you just named, Paul Wolfowitz, who was kind of invited along for the ride by his boss, Donald Rumsfeld, interrupts the proceedings at a certain point saying, I don't know why we're talking about Osama bin Laden, we should be going after Saddam. And most people around the table look at him like he was the Looney Tunes, but Bush listened to him and he made this whole argument about Saddam's historic um, ties to Al Qaeda. Uh, those arguments were largely shot down by the CIA's director of counterterrorism, Kofor Black, but, um, and Bush at a certain point said, okay, you know what, let's leave Iraq for later. 
and continued on with the discussion. Most of the people around the table thought that's the end of it. It was not the end of it because later that afternoon during a break, Wolfowitz sides up, sidles up to President Bush and they start talking about Iraq some more. And, and Wolfowitz advances the Chalabi kind of argument that you know there is a way actually that we can bring, we can arm some resistance fighters, we can seal off, um, we can seal off with no fly zones, areas that will confine uh, Saddam uh, away from his oil fields where his money supply is and just into Baghdad. And in this way, we'll sort of starve him out. And so Bush walked away from all that kind of intrigued. And that very, I can't remember if it was the 15th that day or the next day, he went to Donald Rumsfeld and he said, you know what? I want to see some more plans. I want to see some more plans for Iraq. So what Wolfwood succeeded in doing against all odds and against all reason, practically, was when the subject was clearly uh, Osama bin Laden, uh, he managed to get uh, uh, he, he managed to he managed to get Saddam Hussein into Bush's mindset, and it never went away. Bush concentrated on Osama bin Laden, but somewhere in the back of his mind was Saddam, where Wolfowitz had put him. And when it was time after Operation Enduring Freedom, uh, uh, the routing of the Taliban from Afghanistan, once that had been seemingly completed to Bush's satisfaction, he could then turn to what he was calling the next theater in the war on terror, and that was Iraq. Let's be honest. Whether you're back in the office or still in your sweatpants working from home, Life's day-to-day -day responsibilities lacks the fun we all want and deserve. If you're looking for a sign to use some of that hard-earned PTO and have some much-needed fun, look no further. FunJet Vacations is a one-stop shop for all your vacation needs. And as experts in the industry, FunJet Vacations offers customers a fast, easy, and fun way to book their next vacation with exclusive package deals to all-inclusive resorts in Mexico, Central America, and the Caribbean. For a limited time, our listeners can use promo code FUNJET75 for $75 off your next FUNJET vacation at Ryu Hotels and Resorts. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly resort or an adults-only getaway, there's a Ryu Hotel and Resort for you. To get started, just go to funjet.com or contact your travel advisor and you'll be out of the office in no time. Offer is only valid at funjet.com when booked by October 15th for travel through December 21st. Restrictions apply. Robert, let, let's take a second. You know, I, I am always fascinated with how decisions are made. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, I think about books like, um, I, I'm not going to remember its name properly, the Israeli guy, Daniel Kalman. Um, I, I'll, I'll remember his name in, in, in a minute, but that talks about, he's worked with the Israeli army on how they make decisions. And so decisions start with human human beings, right? And <laughs> how they operate. So just for the purpose of reminding everybody, share with us a thumbnail sketch of the defining characteristics of each of these characters. Sure, sure. So start, of course, with Bush, um, elected by the narrowest of margins, one Supreme Court justice, 537 votes in Florida, not a whole lot of um, uh, mandate there, and also very, very little foreign policy experience. This is why he's got as his number two guy, his right-hand man, Dick Cheney, who knows the ropes in Washington, but also had been Secretary of Defense before and has a great deal of experience in that regard. I mentioned Bush's um, sort of uh, you know lack of a mandate. A person who would help him with that would be Colin Powell, his first pick in his cabinet to be Secretary of State. Powell at that point had astronomical approval ratings just across the boards, I mean, across um, uh, the spectrums of both parties. And so it's not only that um, Powell could help him get things done and had his own superior foreign policy experience as chief of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, but also he had the kind of chops and the credibility to aid Bush in that regard. 
Condoleezza Rice uh, was the youngest and in a lot of ways the least experienced of his foreign policy group, still quite experienced, a very, very bright individual who was his national security advisor, who more than anybody else in Bush world had formed a real bond with the boss. And they were actually almost like brother and sister. And, and uh, uh, unfortunately, and we'll get to this down the line, um, that, that she had that one card to play or everybody else, her access to uh, the president was something she didn't want to forfeit, didn't want to risk. Uh, she, she didn't risk the political capital, I think, that she could have or should have, and instead um, to keep herself uh, um, accessible and, and uh, to, to Bush, she didn't always disagree with him at, at uh, critical points. The other two people are uh, the aforementioned Secretary of Defense, Donald Rumsfeld, uh, who had previously been a Secretary of Defense for uh, uh, Gerald Ford, and so who at first blush seemed to be incredibly qualified. Uh, the catch, however, was that he had not been in government for something like uh, 25 years. And so there was there was a lot that, that Rumsfeld um, was not up to speed on. And he, like other people that I've mentioned, um, were certainly not up to speed with, um, with the world of terrorism and Islamic extremism. That they believed was kind of a Clinton thing, you know, this, these uh, um, these terrorist attacks hither and yon and Yemen and, and Somalia and elsewhere um, just didn't seem like the kind of major league um, foreign policy uh, uh, arena decisions um, to be focused on. And, and Rumsfeld was certainly one of those. The final person I should mention was um, the one holdover from the Clinton administration, George Tenet. Who had been director of um, the director of the CIA, and um, uh, Tennant uh, had a real facility for him. He's a real people person. Uh, he and Bush really got along well. He know he knew how to to, to work Bush, and uh, and so uh, he managed to stay on. Tennant, in my view, uh, and we can get to this later. It's um, in more detail. Is something of a tragic character because I, I do believe that he didn't have ambitions for himself, but he really wanted to protect the agency. But be but believed that to protect the CIA meant not to um, uh, uh, not to be in conflict with the other key members of the administration for fear that he and by extension the CIA uh, would be left um, outside the door when the big decisions were being made. Robert, so one of the things that was striking to me um, was, so you've got these different departments. You've got the Defense Department, you've got the State Department, you've got the National Security Council, and you've got the CIA as the big departmental players in what this would be. And this might be a stupid question, but it seemed like in reading your book, departments were stepping back from the roles that they should have had and departments like the Department of Defense under Rumsfeld were overstepping their role and that became part of the problem. Is, 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 that, is that a fair depiction? It is, especially with regard to what would happen after the invasion of Iraq, um, uh, who would be in charge of post-Saddam Iraq and the reconstruction of it and the, uh, uh, the securing of it. That was generally uh, historically a diplomacy-driven thing, but Rumsfeld didn't believe so. Rumsfeld believed that if, if, uh, if one considers that a phase four or phase five of military action, that it necessarily falls under the purview of the Defense Department. Rumsfeld was, as you were alluding to earlier, um, uh, a very turf-driven guy, um, a very, um, very mindful of his status in the chain of some, uh, command and not wanting any kind of interference um, uh, between him uh, and the commander-in-chief, the president of the United States. Also very mindful, just bureaucratically speaking, of, of um, uh, who gets to make one, what decision. He, he was always uh, wanting to make sure that the Defense Department's sovereignty was not in any way violated. Uh, and and yes, there was a lot of there also was a lot of cross pollination, particularly between the office of the vice president, where Cheney had this very small but formidable operation, uh, and uh, the Defense Department, because 
Cheney was a protege of Rumsfeld going back to the Ford administration, really even earlier than that. And uh, those guys saw eye to eye on almost everything. Uh, and so there was a lot of discussion back and forth, um, uh, and, and I would say even colluding uh, between uh, defense and the office of the vice president, while at the same time, um, the State Department and George Tenet CIA often found themselves um, in confederation on a lot of things. It was Condi Rice, the national security advisor, who was sort of officiating all of these uh, all of these turf wars. Trying well, to Rumsfeld disliked her. He had no no yeah. use for her, right? That's 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 an understatement. Rumsfeld was frankly a real jerk to her. I mean, he uh, uh, he showed her a great deal of disrespect, uh, and uh, uh, one time was. Um, in her office, yelling at her about something, and then just turned her office light on as he marched out the door, leaving her in the darkness of her own office. And uh, her own people believed, you know, that this was an outrage and wondered why she didn't tell him to, you know, go screw himself or or talk to the president about it. Her belief always was that um, if if she ever had to come to the president, basically saying. Colin Powell and Don Rumsfeld aren't getting along, or Rumsfeld's being a jerk to me and stepping on my turf or not respecting my authority, that essentially she was burdening the president with a personnel decision that um, he shouldn't have to be burdened with. She felt like this was her fiduciary obligation to deal with all this stuff. Uh, and and furthermore, to it was her obligation to bring to the president a consensus opinion on everything, basically an opinion that all of the people that we've been talking about would sit around a table, discuss the merits and demerits of and come to a conclusion on so that the president himself wouldn't have to spend hours and hours listening to these debates. Now, when it comes to the advisability of going to war in a country that hasn't attacked us, frankly, I think having the debate is useful. And it is notable, uh, um, tragically so, in the run up to war that there was literally no such debate um, to which the president was privy in which he actually heard the pros and cons of whether or not to evade Iraq. So I want to I want to take that piece, those pieces of the conversation and and break them down now as this decision was made, because as you make clear in the book. Nobody was intentionally lying. There wasn't there wasn't some scheme at the outset that. Rumsfeld or Wolfowitz or any of them said, now I know this to be true, but nonetheless, I'm going to espouse a theory. So how did they begin convincing themselves and sort of remaining um, unskeptical right. uh, despite little, little pieces of, of contrary information that there in fact were weapons of mass destruction and or that Iraq was somehow colluding with Al-Qaeda. Sure, so let me address that by kind of backing into it by stating at the outset that a lot of us remember the bumper sticker, Bush lied, people died. And I, I make a point in the book of saying I really found no evidence that, that he and others in the administration were affirmatively lying uh, to the American public or to each other. Um, that's not terribly comforting. It may be a distinction without a difference when you are being so cavalier about what the facts are, um, so disinterested in the pursuit of the truth, and basically believing that, um, well, we believe that Saddam has weapons of mass destruction, whether he has as many chemical weapons as we think he does, whether he does have mobile biological labs. Um, in the end, it doesn't matter because we'll go in, we'll invade, we'll find something, and no one's going to care you know, uh, about connecting the dots from this intelligence claim to this particular finding. So how did they come to this notion? It was, uh, in a lot of ways, inherited. Um, it uh, uh, throughout the nineteen uh, in the early nineteen nineties, um, Saddam did indeed have WMD. We discovered um, some of them. Some of them Saddam handed over. The rest of them Saddam destroyed. We didn't think that he had destroyed them. We figured that he was hiding them, and he certainly was behaving like somebody who had something to hide. He 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 seemed to be deceptive to us, and we were onto something, but we were onto the wrong thing. He was being deceptive, but not to us. He was being deceptive to his neighbors, the Iranians. He wanted the Iranians to think that he had a chemical weapons stockpile because if Iran thought otherwise, they could always attack 
um, uh, Iraq, which is small, uh, much smaller with less of a, uh, uh, of a fighting force than Iran, and um, Iraq would be toast. And of course, so would Saddam Hussein. So that was the kind of dangerous game that Saddam was playing. Uh, and uh, but we believed all along that he was hiding something. If he asked almost anybody in the intelligence community, that's what they would believe. There's an important question, though, that nobody ever bothered to really address. And that's, if you ask the same people in the intelligence community um, who said, yes, Saddam probably has weapons, he used to, he's acting still kind of like he does. If you asked him then the important next question was, which was, well, would he ever use them against us, against the US? You would across the board to get the answer. No, he's he's not an idiot. He's, he you know, never he's threatened him. us. He it, never. Right? No, no. Well, I mean, he would rattle his sword, he, his saber. He would say nasty things about us, which what does that mean? It means he's a politician. You know, I mean, it's uh, <laughs> right. he, he, he would play to the street, the street being the Arab street and, and in many cases, the Palestinian street. By uh, you know he'd he'd cut checks to uh, the widows of Palestinian um, suicide bombers, for example. He actually so so by the way did Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and Jordan. You know our allies. <laughs> we never really cared about that. Um, but the fact that that Saddam was doing it was a real eye opener. You know made us believe that he was confederating. Uh, and uh, there to the point of uh, or to the assertion that Saddam had these associations with Al Qaeda. Well, it was certainly true that throughout the 1990s that um, they eyeballed each other and there were some meetings here and there. Again, politicians take meetings. You know, it happens all the time in the United States, too. And, and uh, but there was no evidence of any kind of operational relationship. And in fact, it is well known that bin Laden despised Saddam, who was the very the very emblem of what he hated about um, uh, secular regimes in the Middle East. And okay, Saddam from time to time would pretend uh, he wasn't secular. He would, you know, uh, again, you know, establish mosques and all that. It's what a good politician does who hopes to survive. But we saw two plus two and came up with 22 on all of this stuff. And finally figured that because Saddam set, has said terrible things about us and said basically we had 9-11 coming to us and that Saddam then um, uh, had his own weapons, as we believed erroneously that he did, that if he didn't attack us, he'd hand them over to his good buddy, um, uh, Osama bin Laden, and, uh, and bin Laden would do it. And this is the crazy-making thing, one of many, I suppose, in my book, the, where I trace the rhetoric of George W. Bush. And so it's, it's been said, Roxanne, that 9-11 was a failure of the imagination. We failed to see coming, you know, the, using a, uh, box cutters and our own airplanes against us. I would argue that the, the decision to invade Iraq was informed by uh, a failure of too much imagination, of imagination run wild, of us constantly seeing the worst in everything. And uh, seeing the worst in everything if we didn't invade Iraq, and then seeing the best in everything if we did invade Iraq, mm -hmm. you know, that everything would go perfectly, everybody would uh, coalesce around freedom and, and uh, you know, it would all be sort of peaches and candy. Uh, but, uh, um, but what Bush would say, so there was a famous speech that he gave in Cincinnati where he said, now, does Saddam have nuclear capability? We don't know. And that's the problem. Well, yes, that's the problem. So let's find out more. But no, that's not what Bush meant. Bush, Bush just said, you know, we don't know. And that's the problem because we think he's hiding something. And one could imagine Saddam uh, uh, developing nuclear capability. But, and this was the famous phrase, we don't want to wait for the smoking evidence when it comes in the form of a mushroom cloud. But at no point is that an evidentiary case. It's a reliance on the imagination. Mm -hmm. Just as many just as when he would say, you know, Saddam would love nothing more than to give his arsenal of deadly weapons to someone like Al Qaeda, let them do the dirty work and him sit back smiling without so much as a thumbprint on it all. Bush actually said that, and there is nothing in that entire construction that is supported by fact. It was all a feat of the imagination. And, you know, Robert, the thing that it makes you think about is, um, you know, when you read about assessing risk and risk mitigation, right, the risk that was averted never gets the credit it deserves, right? Because it didn't happen. Right. It didn't happen. And when you're trying to assess when a risk would happen, you normally do whatever you can to accumulate factual information to most accurately assess the risk, right? That's the 
normal way you would do it. So what, what you make clear in the book is that there was a series of either a lack of curiosity about the facts or an environment that discouraged debate. So who do you fault among these characters for most squelching an atmosphere of debate? Sure. Well, it, it certainly begins with the president of the United States, whose job it was um, to say to Condoleezza Rice or to his chief of staff, Andy Card, hey, you know what? Um, I've kind of been hearing the same opinions from everybody. Maybe let's bring in a dissenting point of view. You know, I've heard mm -hmm. from I've heard from King Abdullah of Jordan, who doesn't want us to invade, but he's got his own interests. Let's bring in somebody from the United States and let's let's take a crack at their best argument. You know, and he never did that. And, never. and yeah, not once. And and now I would say that it was a, a failure of her fiduciary obligation as national security advisor for Condi for Condi Rice not to bring in such an individual. So um, the the um, disinterest in expanding the argument falls on the shoulders of George W. Bush. Now, then comes the jostling of intelligence and, and what what Cheney was doing, I think was, um, you know, this was, it was ultimately Bush's decision to go to war. But I do think Cheney kept the president in a box, reminding him daily of the dangers of um, uh, posed by Saddam Hussein, uh, he and his chief of staff, Scooter Libby, presenting uh, uh, intelligence that was of dubious value to the president, claiming that this, that this or that weapon stockpile existed when it did not. Um, but then, you know, comes uh, George Tenet, who made a read that a lot of people did. Um, so Bush was saying over and over throughout the spring and summer uh, and even fall of 2002, I have not made up my mind about whether or not to go to war. Now, that was true so far as it went. Bush was um, was pretty intent on going to war, but uh, but he had not truly decided. And yet, Roxanne, everyone, beginning with Tenet, believed he had made up his mind by August of 2002. So they began operating under the assumption um, that he did. Actually, I say beginning with Tenet. I should really be say beginning with Condi and her, um, her deputy, uh, Steve Hadley. So Hadley in early 2002 decides, you know, well, I'm sure hearing a lot of talk of Iraq. Uh, we'd better start planning about what to do if we invade Iraq. Let's start building up these interagency task force and all that. So what's happening on this kind of unconscious level is they're preparing for war already. And when you prepare for war, um, then that's the big muscle bound option. While this kind of puny underdeveloped option of diplomacy and avoiding war at all costs is given kind of short shrift. So in the interagency that begins, and then you've got Bush had asked Rumsfeld very early draw up war plans. And so now you've got these very, very vigorous military invasion plans being drawn up. Then you have George Tenet of the CIA figuring, well, war is probably gonna happen. So you know what, I'm gonna start gathering intelligence forces, planting them in you know, the region of the Middle East, trying to get more contacts. And, uh, and for that matter, um, the president is very interested in what we've got on Saddam's WMD program. I'm going to give as much as I can on that. And what again happened on maybe an unconscious level was that, um, um, I mean, Tenet would, would talk to his analysts and he'd say, okay, what can I say that's fact-based about um, Saddam's weapons arsenal or, or, uh, or about say Saddam. Like he went and, into sales mode. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, no, I mean, he just, you know, it, it was he was figuring sort of what he could at least say um, that would ultimately help the president's case for war. And then finally came a point in late 2002 where Bush basically asked the CIA, can you prepare a case for war for us? Because we're gonna have to market this to the public. That ultimately became the basis of Secretary of State Colin Powell's February 2003 speech to the United Nations, which was a very fateful speech um, and which also was riddled with intelligence errors. In fact, almost everything that um, Powell reported as unassailable evidence uh, to this international body turned out to be untrue. Uh, Robert, I, I wanna emphasize one of the points uh, that you just made because I find I, I, it was among the many things that I was either infuriated or fascinated by was the idea that 
all these people surrounding Bush decided that he had decided, and they therefore operated as if that train had left the station and they were going into planning mode, not debating mode. Right. Yeah. And where in the time frame, because you know, when I think about the people who disappointed me as opposed to just appalled me, uh, the two I would have put in there were Powell and Rice. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so one of somewhere along the way here, Scowcroft, Brent Scowcroft had couldn't get an ear in the administration. He he writes an op-ed in the New York Times. Condoleezza Rice is his protege, yet I I was a little bit surprised that he hadn't persuaded her at least to bring it to somebody's attention. So what, what do you make of all of that in terms of her decision not to speak up? Sure. So what you're describing is, you know, a, a, a bubble that was forming around the, you know, war council apparatus in the Bush administration, where, you know, very insular and very unwilling to take in alternative points of view. Um, Scowcroft was indeed the mentor of Condi Rice. He did indeed try to get her attention to talk to her about this. He was of the belief that this could have disastrous consequences um, invading Iraq. And, uh, and when he couldn't, um, he then wrote this op-ed, it was in the Wall Street Journal, actually, that, that w- it was entitled, Don't Invade Iraq. Now, the reaction um, from, uh, from Bush, from uh, Cheney, uh, from Condi Rice was all one of outrage because they basically thought two things. First, um, you, know, you know this is gonna make us look bad and, uh, and whose side are you on anyway? Uh, you, you should never play this Washington game you know, when it comes to us, your buddies. Uh, and the second thing was that uh, everyone's going to assume that this is basically considering that you were the national security advisor and close friend of my father, George Herbert Walker Bush, everyone's going to assume that this had his okay on it, that perhaps he agrees and you're starting a father-son conflict here. It is, by the way, true that, that Scowcroft sent um, the op-ed to um, Father Bush uh, just so that he wouldn't be blindsided mm-hmm. by it. And, uh, and Father Bush gave his okay, not so much to the content of the op-ed, but to Scowcroft publishing it. And, uh, but it, it, um, uh, it, they were really, really angry at Scowcroft. And it's a pity because I don't think for a nanosecond, they actually factored in um, what Scowcroft was saying. Uh, this was published by the way, in August of 2002. And it was roughly around that very same time that the one person uh, in the upper reaches of the Bush administration, got the opportunity to lay out for the president just all that could go wrong. And that was Colin Powell's famous um, August the 5th, 2002 uh, dinner uh, at the White House residence with Bush and Condi Rice was present at that. And, you know, Powell, to his credit, I think, um, uh, used everything at his disposal to describe all that should happen uh, or all that could go wrong. The president then said, well, Colin, what should I do? This was, of course, an opportunity for Powell to say, don't go to war. Don't do yeah. it. It's not what he said. He said, go to the UN. So Powell had long been of the belief that, um, you know, we can slow roll this. You know, eventually, if, he, if it goes into, if, if it requires getting UN approval and a UN resolution, and then we go in and, and, um, uh, and inspect Saddam's um, country for, for weapons. Uh, maybe Saddam will turn them over. Maybe we won't find anything and thus there won't be a reason to go to war, but things will move slower. We'll also build more of a coalition. And, uh, and, but it was not a full use of Powell's political capital. And in part because Powell believed that, look, if I just say, don't go to war, then he's gonna stop listening to me. He's, Do you think you know, it would have made a difference? Um, I'll tell you when it would have made a difference. And that's when in January of 2003, Bush turned to Colin Powell and said, are you with me? I, I, uh, yeah. I, I think I'm going to do this. So Bush didn't say that in August of 2002, but he did say in January of 2003. And Powell was not with him, really. I mean, Powell thought that invading Iraq, certainly the way they were doing it, was a terrible mistake. So what would have happened, and I explore this in my book, if Powell had said, no, sir, I'm not with you. Um, 
Powell therefore have had to resign. He couldn't have stayed on board um, if that were the and case. His department would have resigned, or his, uh, yeah, yeah, major his staff. staff would That's right. Then, in turn, his counterpart in uh, the UK, Foreign Minister Jack Straw, told me he would have resigned. If Jack Straw would have resigned, then there would have been a vote of no confidence of Tony Blair, or he simply just would have lost. In, in essence. Um, the UK would have been taken out of the game and would no longer be a partner in the invasion of Iraq. So imagine, Roxanne, the headlines then, if all of this is taking place. Meanwhile, Hans Blix for the weapons inspectors is finding no weapons at all. And right. so, so now everybody takes a pause and thinks, what is the Bush administration doing anyway? No, it could have changed the course of history. It certainly could have. But instead, what Powell figured was, as he said to me, he said, look, you know, I mean, what was I going to do? I'm, I'm, uh, uh, he's the commander in chief. I'm his general. People do call me the reluctant warrior, but I do know how to do wars. So I figured if he's going to go to war, he needs me. And as I say in the book, the tragedy is that Bush did not use Colin Powell um, to go to war. He used Powell to sell the war. We will be right back after a word from our sponsor. There's big news from my favorite home security company. Simply Safe just launched their new wireless outdoor security camera. That's right, Simply Safe, the system that US News and World Report names best home security system of 2021, just got even better. This brand new outdoor security camera is engineered with all the advanced tech and security features you want and need to help keep you and your family safe. The new wireless outdoor security camera has an ultra-wide 140-degree field of view, so you can keep watch over your entire yard. It has 1080p HD resolution with an 8x zoom. That means you can zoom in and clearly see things like faces and license plates to capture critical evidence. It has a built-in spotlight with color night vision, so you can keep an eye on what's going on day and night. It's super simple to set up and usually just takes minutes and it has an easy to remove rechargeable battery, so it doesn't need an outlet and can go anywhere on your property. This camera has it all, and it integrates with your Simply Safe home security system, extending its protection to the outside. Together, it means every door, window, and room of your home are protected, and now your property will be too. To learn more about the exciting new Simply Safe wireless outdoor security camera, Visit simplysafe.com slash just the right book. What's more, Simply Safe is celebrating this new camera by offering 20% off your entire new system and your first month of monitoring service free when you enroll in interactive monitoring. Again, that's simplysafe.com slash just the right book. Before we talk about the legacy of this and what there is to be um, learned. In terms of fighting the war, the condition right after the invasion, um, so th they make this monumental, flawed, um, deadly decision to invade Iraq. But then this weird thing happens where they pull this guy Garner out, Rumsfeld, uh, I think you say, pulls him out, and they put in Bremer, who makes two decisions that really hadn't been made. One was to totally disband the Iraqi army, and two, to eliminate all the Ba'athists, even though some of them were just like low-level teachers and clerks, from the government. Um, and that seemed like another, in, like, who wasn't paying attention there to, for Bremer to unilaterally or seemingly unilaterally make that decision? Because that, too, might have changed the course of the war. Sure. Yeah. Well, so, you know, this this is a case where um, when no one was looking uh Individuals in the Department of Defense, particularly the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, Doug Fife, was basically preparing those two um, uh, those those two um, uh, dictates that were handed off to Bremer. I mean, it's as I disclosed in my book, these were not Bremer's decisions. Now he came to support them, he came to own them, but they actually didn't originate with him. Uh, Chalabi was very much behind the decision yeah. to debathify because, of course, you know, Chalabi wanted 
He wanted a, a pro-Shia government. He wanted all elements of the Ba'athists out. And as you've kind of alluded, not only to be, you know, not only were just ordinary school teachers Ba'athists, it's kind of what you had to do to be in these positions of power, but also that meant that the people who knew how to run things, the technocrats and the educators and, and the like, uh, they were all Ba'athists. So you get rid of them, you basically get rid of all expertise. The worst of the two decisions, though, I think, was the disbandment of the military, not only because we had actually promised them that we would not do that. We were dro literally dropping leaflets from the sky saying to them, please go home, put, set down your arms, go home to your families and basically await further orders and we'll you know, make you a part of the new Iraq. Um, and the further orders ended up making, came from somebody else and made them insurrectionists. Yes, yes. Yeah, they became insurrectionists because, I mean, gee, this is a great idea. Let's, um, uh, let's suddenly take paychecks away from every Iraqi who has a gun. <laughs> that's a good way to piss a lot of people off. And it's a good way to start an insurgency. And that's exactly, they, those disaffected members of the Iraqi army were the experts who knew warfare, who knew uh, paramilitary training and form the basis of the insurgency against us because of that disastrous decision. You know, uh, uh, among the many things that we're not going to have the time to get to, I, I am curious where the journalists were in all of this. Like, I don't remember them. I remember some fringe stuff questioning it, but the kind of work that you've done in this book you know, some is based on new information and new access and the thoroughness with you, but a lot of it could have been determined then and written about. Am I, am I missing something or forgetting something? No, not really. I mean, there's a there's a chapter in my book about the failure of the media, you know, and, and their role basically in the run up to war. And I guess I delineate two or three different factors for this, Roxanne. One of them is that the media, um, like the Bush administration, was unprepared for 9-11, you know, that's, uh, uh, you look at uh, all the press briefings as I did, that um, uh, that the White House press corps did with press secretary Ari Fleischer in the eight months before 9-11, not one member of the White House press corps ever asked anything about Al-Qaeda, much less about bin Laden or the determination to attack the US. So they were caught with their pants down just like the Bush administration. Um, they're now sort of in a state of hypervigilance, much like the Bush administration looking for the next attack. On top of that, uh, there are the factors that, you know, the competitiveness of wanting the next scoop, wanting, you know, to, um, to get what other people have uh, didn't get. So, you know, the, the editor of the New York Times, Hal Raines, uh, basically got a crack team of reporters saying, go find out um, about Iraq's weapons program. Uh, never for a second saying, go find out if Saddam has one. The final thing I would say that contributes to this is that um, uh, there were uh, members of the media, prominent members who themselves have had experience covering the Iraqi regime, came to loathe Saddam Hussein, mm -hmm. came to believe that he was horrible to his own people, conflated that um, horribleness of Saddam on a domestic level with his horribleness on the global front, imagining that a guy who would gas the Kurds or the Shia might also gas the United States, which is an incredible deductive leap, but they took it all the same because they believed Saddam was capable of anything and thus capable of everything. I guess, you know, what I'm also describing is a kind of beltway groupthink, right? I mean, we're yeah. uh, the media all following each other, using their traditional sources. The, the people who tended not to do that were the ones who uh, were not the big legacy um, journalistic machines like the Knight Ritter operation, they got almost everything right where the New York Times got so many things wrong and, and, and the Washington Post as well. So it's a, but, but it's not confined to them. There were liberals who, liberal members of the media who'd seen the good work that the U.S. had done in Kosovo and Bosnia and had figured, you know, not all wars have to be you know, like Vietnam. They don't have to be protracted and disastrous. And the Gulf and, War had happened. And that's right. Yeah, and and they were encouraged by the notion of democratization of the Middle East by by uh, this being um, something that would be seen as a pro-Israeli kind of invasion. Uh, there was, I mean, there's a lot the media has to answer for. And frankly, I think very very few members of the media who were pro-invasion uh, have completely come to terms with all this, at least publicly. Yeah, you know, we're, we're not getting to talk about whether you heard of any regrets from the 
Bush administration. But I want to get to two things. I'll before. answer that very quickly just by saying the answer is is not really. Not one person wow. on the senior staff of the Bush administration said, you know what, I don't think we should have invaded. There, there, I do believe Steve Hadley came to regret it. I think Condi Rice has some second thoughts about it, but it's so tied up in the legacy of the Bush administration that it's sort of the hate that dare not speak its name. <laughs> you know, that's um, they're still kind of insistent that now nah, Saddam is a terrible guy, the world's better off without him, uh, when the evidence does not necessarily stack up that way. Yeah, I mean, you talk about in the book uh, that um, there were 4,400 American lives, 32,000 wounded. And sometimes I think we talk about that wounded, those wounded as if they're fine. These are people whose lives were potentially ruined, they lost limbs, they're dealing, you know, it's not merely they're not dead. Oh, that's good right. news. Um, but 300,000 of, of 1.5 million US troops who served would return home suffering from PTSD. Yeah. And yeah. we ultimately, Rumsfeld, couldn't you say, couldn't fathom it even costing a billion dollars and it ultimately exceeded 2 trillion. Yes, um, yeah. and those are and those are the domestic costs, right? I mean, to say nothing of, of the, the Iraqi costs. Yeah, you know, the eight hundred thousand or so Iraqis who lost their lives during this conflict. When the assumption was they will be so grateful for us, that's not the tune that's being sung in Iraq. It's not. So, Robert, the 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 big question um, I, I think that your book causes us to think about is what should we have learned from the process by which we decided to go to war in Iraq. And it's married to the notion of what should the US role be in, you know, when do we uh, militarily intervene? What is our role in nation building or spreading democracy? And what role do we have in, humanitarian efforts, what do you want the reader or those who are still in policymaking positions to think about in reading this book? Well, a couple of things, and they seem fairly obvious, but, uh, but apparently weren't obvious at the time. One of them is that a decision to go to war has to have a certain integrity to it, and meaning it, it, it has to be based on facts. It, it should require a certain transparency. And, um, you know, I, I think in a lot of ways, uh, the Obama administration overlearned this. I mean, uh, you know, the, the discussions about what to do uh, regarding Libya were, were quite discursive, same with, with, with Syria. But that's, that's one component, and, uh, and, and that um, they should require the airing of alternative points of view. The other component is the recognition that wars invariably have second and third order consequences. They're always messy uh, and one should always assume the worst rather than the best. The notion that as President Bush really did believe that um, uh, every person in the world deserves freedom, yearns to be free. And so if you give them an opportunity to be free by taking away the dictator who has oppressed them, that they will dance in the streets and they will, you know, the, any squabbles between Shias and Sunnis will be immediately forgotten because now they have a new stake in this free Republic of Iraq. These were foolish notions and, and, uh, and, and deeply naive. Uh, and, and, and so I think that, that, um, and, how this has affected uh, that entire region, how it has affected the world's perception of us, and by the way, how it's affected you know um, our domestic politics. But for Iraq, we wouldn't have had Obama. But for Iraq and Obama, we wouldn't have had Trump. Um, uh, right. I, I, I really believe that that those are accurate, and uh, uh, that decision has had profound consequences. And uh, I, I mentioned before that it's. You know, um, Bush's legacy is irrevocably linked to this, but but now he has, um, you know, everything that we're doing and seeing is is seen, you know, through the lens of Iraq, including the fact that Americans don't trust expertise the way they yeah. once did, uh, because you know one of the the tragic and infuriating aspects of this whole narrative, Roxanne, 
is that these guys were in a lot of ways the Republican version of the best and the brightest. You could not say that these were a bunch of amateurs by any yeah. means. These and, were experienced, uh, smart people. Yeah, and it's worth looking at this narrative because it's not that Bush went to war in Iraq the day after 9-11. No, there were like 18 months between the two. And so viewed from that, you'd say, oh, well, there was a lot of sober discussion. Well, as my book makes clear, there was no. not. So how did they use those 18 months? And and it is, you know, this, in a way, a study in groupthink, in, in confirmation bias, uh, in overactive imaginations, uh, and, and a lot of intellectual dishonesty uh um and also misguided intentions you know there is a lot of um uh misguided idealism that drove uh what uh deputy secretary of defense paul wolfowitz and president bush in particular um about uh the notion of refashioning the middle east and uh, and of basically turning 9-11 into somehow a good thing you know it's uh that, that it would provide this golden opportunity for us to remake the world uh you know into a place that was better than we had again noble ideals but better to assume the worst than to assume these kinds of things mm. and uh, robert you can't read this book at this moment without wondering how in the in the inverse the same failures might have informed Biden in deciding how and when to withdraw from Afghanistan, because even people who might have agreed that it was the right thing to do, and maybe it should have been done 19 years ago after the Taliban quickly um, retreated when we first invaded, but that too seemed on reflection to look like a failure of intelligence, uh, a, a another arena of suppressing contrary opinions and engaging in debate. What, what's your take how that same legacy of the Iraqi decision-making might have, have contributed to a problematic decision on withdrawing from Afghanistan? Well, what it proved was that um, Afghanistan, even with all our resources there, remains, as they say, in the intelligence community world, kind of a hard target for information. It's tough to get um, sourcing, apparently. Uh, the, the biggest intelligence failure that I can tell thus far regarding uh, the slipshod withdrawal in Afghanistan was the assumption that the Afghan security forces would continually stand up um, and yet uh, they clearly were seeing Ghani as someone who um, was not worthy of their support, uh, whose administration was falling apart. They were having the army back channel conversations with members of the Taliban. We were not privy to any of this and we should have been. It, it, for me, as someone who'd been to Afghanistan um, on two occasions, once for a month, um, it was evident to me that, uh, that the Afghan members of the Afghan army were seeing this as a paycheck and not as like a, a patriotic gambit. Um, and, um, and that once we pulled up, they would deal with the devil who always remained there, the devil they knew, uh, members of the Taliban who lived in their own villages. I do think that Biden has been guided, however, in this decision from the Iraq debacle because he basically realized, you know, this is... Um, We've been there 20 years. Uh, it's uh, um, it's unclear what we're accomplishing now. It's unclear what more we'll accomplish if we stay there another five years or 10 years. And uh, this is eroding uh, our credibility in a lot of ways, both domestically and abroad. And even if this means tragedies, as it surely will, uh, um, I, I think he was hoping for the best uh, regarding uh, the Ghani administration's ability to maintain uh, control of at least some of Afghanistan, I think nonetheless that that he was sadder at why and but wiser from the Iraq experience and realized um, uh, we can get stuck in these wars forever. And uh, uh, essentially, he was surrendering. But it's um, mm -hmm. uh, but the truth was is that you know after Operation Enduring Freedom, when we routed out the Taliban for their support and and sheltering of Al Qaeda, and after we failed to get. So uh, Osama bin Laden in Afghanistan, and he uh, left obviously for Pakistan, um, then our mission expanded there. And uh, it was a creeping commitment um, that Biden didn't squawk about at the time as a senator, but I think he came over time to realize um, we'll be there forever. 
You know, now, now you can make the honest argument, that, okay, we should be there forever. Let's be there for 20, 2,500 troops or so just to keep, you know, keep women and children safe um, uh, from Taliban rule. Um, that's a cost. It's it's a it's a debate to have. It's one of the many we yeah. we, we should be having and haven't had. I mean, so the the short the much shorter version of what I just said is like the real legacy of the Iraq experience <laughs> is um, is one we're still living out. Our, our our inability or refusal to like ask these questions and have a searching debate about just what is America's role um, in the world. Uh, when you know does America have a compelling interest to avert a humanitarian catastrophe like in Rwanda? Um, when there is going to be a bloodbath in Benghazi and Misrata uh, uh, being being uh, being fired upon by the troops of Gaddafi, should we enter, or or um, uh, and if so, uh, do we occupy it? Um, because then it can become a stronghold of terrorism. These are just the these are tough questions, but but it's it's it kind of takes my breath away as to how little debate we are having about these important things. Yeah. Um, well, I always hate to end things on a mm-hmm. on a down uh, note, but I, I think that um, not only without sounding like a sycophant, um, I, I if if I was frustrated um, and and maybe enraged by reading what you wrote, I num- I nonetheless adored the book and think it is um, a definitive and revelatory and important for, you know, those of us that are citizens to understand the kind of issues we do and must make our elected officials pay attention to, not this, you know, but somehow I think we all think we're powerless, Mm -hmm. but you know, collectively we're not, and individually, you know, we can start by reading your book and thinking about how government um, maybe can operate differently. I am um, just, you know, we could have talked for hours. You've got a hand in your next uh, book. Robert's working (laughs) on a deadline. Uh, But Robert, I cannot uh, thank you enough for taking the time to uh, speak with me and really for doing the kind of extensive, deliberate, independent thinking uh, that contributed to your writing this book. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you very much for having me, Roxanne. And I'll just briefly say that, you know, it's a human narrative. And, and we've, in a way, been talking about that as we've talked about these characters. And, it's, uh, and so this is not about a government making a solution, uh, ma- ma- making a policy but about a president who is a human surrounded by other fallible individuals who are best intentioned, who may have had motives of their own. And, and to read it from that standpoint um, makes it to me all the more fascinating, all the more tragic, all the more infuriating, but also, you know, if not relatable, then at least something that I think that helps us understand how government operates and how our mm-hmm. leaders function. Yeah. Well, Robert, thanks so much. You've got 47 hours now to meet your deadline. Okay. All right. All right. Be well. I hope to see you soon. All right. Thank you so much. All right. Be well, Robert. Okay. Take care. You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. Produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, Johnny Diamond, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening.